Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and it's a real pleasure to have you here with me today. Today, I bring you another conversation that I've had with my friend and sort of intellectual mentor of sorts, Robert Wright. And today's episode really marks the sixth installment of a series of conversations that Bob and I have been having where I'm endeavoring to explore and and expand upon Bob's worldview with him. And I think as his, his new project around averting the apocalypse speaks to, uh, Bob is very concerned about calamities that face humanity and the world at a global level. And one of the things that concerns him is that he feels, and I agree with him, that we all possess cognitive biases these are kind of perceptual blind spots, but we all possess, possess cognitive biases that can lead to a fueling of tribalism. And it's the us versus them uh, psychology of tribalism that is really creating so much strife in the world today, whether it's in, on domestic politics or international um, relations. And it's, it's the, the psychology of tribalism that it really stands in the way of being able to tackle and come together as a, as a global community to, to tackle these global issues that we need to be able to tackle if we're going to survive the many crises that we're all facing right now. So uh, this is a, these aren't necessarily fun conversations or fun topics, but um, I think they're very important ones. And as somebody, if you're, I imagine if you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in as I try to say, the full-spectrum spirituality. And part of full-spectrum spirituality is how does our spirituality intersect or integrate with the really the, the, the demands of our moment, or the demands of this day. And I really uh, feel that Bob has his finger on the pulse in terms of diagnosing our predicament quite accurately. And of course, the big question is, from a clear diagnosis, what's the prescription? And we're starting to get into that with our conversation here today. Um, but I should just say, too, that uh, I'm aware that that yesterday being July 20th was the day one year ago that my dear friend Michael Brooks passed away all too suddenly at the age of 36. Um, many of you have heard me talk about Michael in the past. I had a whole episode that you can find on my, my podcast called The Dharma of Michael Brooks. Uh, in memory of Michael. Um, Michael was a, a real close, deep brother of mine in many ways, um, and a Dharma friend. And he also became a very uh, influential, uh, progressive political pundit of sorts. And he and Bob connected independently of me. Um, so there's been this sort of triangulation between us for uh, a few years now. And um, at his untimely death, uh, Bob was supposed to host Michael, or actually Michael was hosting Bob on his podcast for a conversation around cognitive empathy. And it was really around, I should say, instigated or inspired by um, the direction that Michael was trying to move in his own work that Bob and I started these, these conversations. In some ways, these conversations are a form of what I think both he and I are trying to do as a way of 
continuing on with the heart of Michael's work, which was to um, really reduce suffering as, as broadly and as comprehensively as possible throughout the world. And I know that sounds like a big, tall order, but Michael's aim was really, was, was aiming right in that direction. How do we mitigate wide-scale suffering for all, all beings? And uh, tackling the existential psychological threats that are at play, meaning the cognitive biases that are, that are embedded in our minds and hearts that fuel conflict, tribalism, and, and, and an, an inability to come together to solve and tackle global crises, um, that, that th- these themes are very much a part of what Michael was also concerned about. So uh, I've been going through my own relived grief a bit around losing Michael, and I've seen another round of outpouring online over Twitter and, and places like that for everyone that was touched by Michael's um, brilliance, his heart, and his comedy, his, 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 his really incredible wit. Um, but it's it's heartening to me to, to, in a way, kind of move forward in my own work in, in, in a way that feels in alignment with Michael's heart. And this conversation series with Bob is definitely part of that. So before I give you that conversation, let me just say two other things. One is that this conversation was originally recorded and published on Bob's own podcast called The Right Show, and that that gets distributed on his platform called meaningoflife.tv. And if you like the themes or the way that the topics that Bob and I are talking about, and you see the the need for more cognitive empathy and compassion, uh, I would really recommend that you consider subscribing to Bob's newsletter. Uh, He has a Substack newsletter at a modest subscription rate, and he he publishes one or two really thoughtful and and I I think beautifully crafted essays a week that are some of the, the most important things I find myself reading every week. So I want to strongly give a shout out to his non-zero newsletter, which there is a link for in the show notes. Um, I, if you care about uh, avoiding the apocalypse or averting the apocalypse, and you want to hear more about how your the, the development of your consciousness in meditation can help can help actually play an active role in averting the apocalypse, then Bob's your guy. And it, it really is uh, a, a sincere pleasure and honor to be able to speak with this with this man on a regular basis. Um, I've learned a tremendous amount from him, and it's it's great to have him on the show. And as a personal note, I'll just say, some of you have heard me share before, um, stepping up to having a conversation with him has been uh, not an easy thing for me. Um, I often feel way, way, way out of my depth um, in terms of knowledge and education and, and, and perspective. But uh, this conversation in particular, I think, was one of our better ones. This is the one where I felt I was most relaxed and comfortable. And it suggests to me a direction that our future conversations are moving, which I'm also looking forward to. So all that to say, without further ado, here is Robert Wright again with a conversation around how to avert the apocalypse, how to overcome existential psychological threats, and the vital role that cognitive empathy has in terms of saving the planet. Okay, 
Here it is. Robert Wright on, a vo- on existential psychological threats. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bob. Um, so, last time we talked about the current status of my meditation practice. If we have time, we can talk a little about that at the end today. Uh, I think you had suggested, uh, you had been, uh, faithfully and commendably reading, uh, the newsletter, non-zero newsletter, and you noted that in a recent, um, issue, I got into this idea of the, uh, explain, excuse, conflation, this idea that some people have that to explain something is to excuse it. Uh, or, or, ju- or justify it. To justify then, it, yeah. yeah. Um, the, uh, so, and you thought, and I do think it's worth talking about that a little, and then, uh, we wanted to get into a question raised by a commenter on the newsletter, uh, that's, uh, uh that was actually left under a different post, uh, but referred to our conversations. This is from somebody who's been, uh, watching or listening to our conversations. Um, and that's about how you mobilize uh, productive forces on social media. It's one thing to point out how people are being needlessly tribalistic or whatever word you want to use on social media and being destructive uh, when they may or may not realize it. It's another thing uh, to actually inspire enough people to behave differently on social media and make a difference. So uh, I want to respond to that person's challenge to at least uh, – think aloud about how you might do that. And then, uh, if, and then if we, if we have time, you wanted to get into, uh, myth. Yeah, I myth. think that's relevant to what, what you're up to. Okay. Good. But, but, but also the phrase that, that you kind of threw out, uh, as we set this up is, is the idea of existential psychological threats. And that's, that's, a, that's what I was sort of getting at with the, where are we in your Dharma? That there's a you have this view that right. the, at at the core the, at the core of the diagnosis are these existential psychological threats and so say more about that what do you mean by an existential yeah. psychological threat so this occurred to me that that I believe this only occurred to me while I was writing the newsletter in which I talked about the uh, well I called it the explain excuse conflation sheerly for the uh i don't know if alliteration is quite the right word but the the uh you know uh, having two words in a row that begin with ex you know but you're right you could substitute justify for explain uh and i was um i was looking at an example i mean the context for the newsletter was that this interesting guy whom i've since taped uh, a podcast with and is now in my uh uh, podcast feed, Agustin Fuentes, uh, an anthropologist at Princeton, had written this piece for Science, the highly esteemed journal, uh, on the 150th anniversary of publication of uh, The Descent of Man. No, it must be the 140th, right? 1881? Anyway, uh, kind of uh, critical of some aspects of The Descent of Man and, and, and rightly critical of some aspects of Darwin's own belief system. But I did challenge him on one point he made, uh, he said he thought, uh, the sin of man, quote, was offering justification for, uh, empire and genocide. And I thought that actually, no, Darwin was describing 
how the dynamics by which uh, people's one people conquers another people, even wipes out another people. But I didn't see him embracing it. And I thought that uh, that Augustine was uh, slipping too easily from someone's attempt to explain something into accusing them of excusing it or justifying it. Okay. Um, and I realized, you know, there are other contexts in which something kind of like this has long driven me crazy. Like specifically, if I say, as I have often said, uh, you know, if you, if you look at what some of these terrorists say before they like shoot up an American nightclub or something or while they're doing it, not infrequently, they say they're doing it because America is bombing uh, majority Muslim nations or America invaded this or that. or uh, And you say that by trying to, you know, in, in the way of trying to explain why they're doing it, uh, possibly to help us develop policies that will be less inclined to uh, foment uh, terrorism. And people accuse you of of excusing it or justifying. You're saying, oh, so you're saying they're, they're justified in doing it. And you say, no, I'm not, I'm not commenting on that at all. I'm just trying to explain it. Uh, now the, the thing that was going on in the Darwin case is, is I think a little different in its underlying logic, but it was another case. I thought of looking at someone who's explaining something and accusing them of trying to justify it. And I realized, I really think this is a, a serious problem that uh, gets in the way of productive discourse about our foreign policy and a lot of other things and um, really gets in, in the way of having a more peaceful world. Um, and, and, and I realized, you know, I have been saying on, uh, you know, as part of the kind of apocalypse aversion project that I'm pursuing in the, the non-zero newsletter, I've been saying that a big part of our problem on this planet is the psychology of tribalism. And I've said that consists of largely of cognitive biases, by which I meant confirmation bias, attribution error. But I've come to realize that I also mean some psychological tendencies that aren't classified generally as cognitive biases, but are deeply problematic. And so if you wanted a rubric that encompasses all of them, like this human tendency to think that people are excusing something when they're explaining it, that that they're uh, exonerating someone when they're explaining why someone did something bad, or for example, um, if, if you want a rubric that encompasses that on the one hand uh, and cognitive biases per se on the other, as well as uh, uh, another problem, which is the, the 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 retributive, not just the retributive impulse, but kind of the intuition that that retribution is justified. That I think is another problem uh, that we are saddled with, uh, and, and I think all of these problems have, in some sense, a basis in the genes, in in the genetic kind of infra- infrastructure of human nature. Uh, and I just realized that. Uh, you know, I need a label that encompasses all these things, whether or not they're they're categorized as cognitive biases per se. And because I do think overcoming them is so critical, if we're going to uh, save the planet, it's fair to call them existential psychological threats. This was my my big epiphany while writing the uh, the Darwin piece in the newsletter. Yeah. Um, 
one question I had is with both, you mentioned a few sort of under the rubric of existential psychological threat. You mentioned this, the cognitive biases piece, the, the, uh, the, the conflation between explaining and excusing something. And also the, this retributive impulse mm-hmm. to, to, to want to exact revenge in a way. And, and I'm, as I'm listening to you, I was trying to figure out is, would, could you, could you imagine there being a kind of root uh, perception or root tendency in the mind that, that, that gives rise to those branch expressions. So one thought that occurred is that it, 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 it might be something like just a tendency to be privy or just a tendency to, to, too easily accept a single cause explanation or a monocausal explanation. And because the complexity of the situation to really tease it out would, would kind of overload the cognitive system. Um, well, so, so, so a tendency towards facile, facile explanations yeah. in a way that, I mean, uh, you could, I mean, there, uh, there is, on the one hand, I would say, there is a human penchant for economical explanation and simple stories. Uh, and sometimes we take that too far, often probably. But I would also say that in this case, um, you know, I, I, I think... Well, go ahead. I'm just thinking of the, the example that you use around around terrorism and, and it, particularly terrorism that involved, you know, Islamic fundamentalist form of that. And the, the, the simple narrative is that those actors are just acting based on some buggy doctrine in a religious text that they are adhering to. And, 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 and that's the only reason why that, yeah. that things that's occurring. Well, I mean, as far as, but as far as kind of monocausal explanations, they could just as easily accuse me of having one, right? If I'm saying like they're, they're mad about American foreign policy, that's like a, that's like a, just a one dimensional explanation, they might say. Well, that's, uh, that's the only one you're speaking to. Right. Yeah. No, I would say ultimately it's a whole lot more complicated than that. You're right. I would say, and now you have to look at like how they grew up, why they weren't getting, uh, kind of uh, social affirmation or whatever they weren't getting through other means. Why, why did they, why were they driven to this extreme form of expression and on and on? You're right. I would have a complex story uh, to tell. And, and I think it's true that some of these people would have a more simple kind of essentialist story to tell. Like in, in some cases they would literally think uh, they are inhabited by evil. That's it. There's this force called evil. Some of them might even say Islam is evil or whatever, uh, or Islam is inherently violent and they've been infected with the Islam, whatever. You're right. Some, some of these people would come up with, with simple explanations, but I want to, I want to explain why I don't think that's all that's going on here. Uh, you know, first of all, I come at this from a background of evolutionary psychology and it is in the nature of evolutionary psychology, certainly mainstream evolutionary psychology, to see the mind as like a uh, kind of an accumulation of, of kludges almost. I mean, a kludge being, you know, a kind of a uh, in computer terminology, I think it's like it's like a it's like a solution that works OK for a particular problem, kind of. 
and and uh, you know, in evolutionary psychology, the idea is that the mind consists of a lot of little uh, things that themselves evolved to solve specific adaptive problems. Now, all of them serve uh, the bottom line of natural selection, or did at one point at least in our in our history. Uh, perhaps when we were in a very different uh, kind of environment, but, but that bottom line being genetic proliferation. So it, it has to be the case that anything that is a biological adaptation was, when it earned its way into our lineage, conducive to genetic proliferation. But still, uh, beyond that, the different parts of the mind in this scenario solve different problems. I mean, just just to take something anyone can understand, the hunger drive versus the sex drive, those are different things. Hunger drive is about staying alive long enough to reproduce. Sex drive is about reproducing. Uh, and, and, and if you look at a finer level and ask, well, where does uh, confirmation bias come from? Where does attribution error come from? In other words, what adaptive problem was being solved? And then, if you assume that this this tendency to equate uh, explanation, well, uh, the retributive uh, instinct or impulse, another ad- adaptive problem, um, and then if you get to this uh, tendency to equate explaining why someone did something with uh, excusing them, for it, uh, I, 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 first of all, it is my intuition, although this is not a well, uh, developed part of evolutionary psychology. It's not like some consensus that that tendency has a basis in our genes. I do believe, I do suspect it does, but in any event, the, the, the evolutionary psychologist's first impulse is to look at these case by case and ask what adaptive problem do they solve? Now, I do think they all have something in common. They, they all are uh, related to the fact that people evolved in a context, we evolved in a context in which people argued with one another about who deserved what, about who had been fair and who hadn't been, about who deserve had made done the most important part of the the hunting and deserved more food about who had had unfairly stolen whose mate whatever the the premise the idea that we have a hereditary infrastructure for engaging in moral argument is that our species has been doing it a long time and who won the arguments has had implications for who got their genes into the next generation most effectively. Okay, so I would say these four things are bound by having originated in that context. I would say that. But um, beyond that, it gets to be a kind of a complicated uh, story. And do you want to try to – can you say more about what – evolutionary or what adaptive uh, solution one of these biases would have provided like say confirmation bias yeah i mean if if you get if you accept the fact if you accept the premise that people argued over things uh and uh argued over who owed who what um like wait i've done three favors for you You've only, you know, and, and, and so you owe me, like, remember when I did this for you? And, and so on, you know, or argue about, um, 
Uh, wait, I've gone out on the last seven hunts. You know, I've been a real trooper. I brought food back to the whole, you know, the whole community. Uh, I deserve some sex or something. I don't know. I don't know what the argument would be, but I was, I was, I gonna, just, let you, I was gonna let I, you say I that. I deserve one. more of the food or something. No, I don't think that you would make the argument uh, quite explicitly. It would be. I don't think that would be part of the deal that you would explicitly argue that you deserve sex. But, um, but I deserve something. Um, or you just want to toot your own horn because you know that impresses people and they are going to treat you with more respect and defer to you and so on, whatever. Um, then it's obvious that something like confirmation bias, you know, which is just a tendency to, yes, always remember the things I've done for other people. But I don't have to remember the things that they've done for me because I, I it is in my interest to be convinced myself that I've done a disproportionate amount of good stuff so that I can argue that convincingly, right? I'm having that, flashbacks to numerous roommates I've had where we've gotten into arguments. And about, it was always their fault, right? You well, were, I, you always, were, I always took out the trash every week. I always exactly. emptied the And they didn't remember that. Imagine that. Right. Uh, just your bad luck that you ran into several roommates in a row who uh, didn't have an objective view of reality, whereas you did. Um, so... That, that's an, ex- an example, uh, of, uh, um, now attribution error. Well, actually, is, stay with that for a second. Yeah, because, yeah. Because, because it, the, I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how, you know, a, 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 a trait or a bias that's, that's adaptive in one environment at one time. Yeah. Is, becomes maladaptive in the current environment. And, and so because it, the, the confirmation bias that was, born out of that kind of dynamic you just described, it will lead people to have all sorts of forms of manifestations of cognitive bias in the modern environment that, that are very different from that sure. kind of, that kind of di- early dynamic. Right. So, yeah. how would it look? so it's like now it's like, um, I mean, it does and it doesn't. I, I mean, it, it's true that on the one hand, this impulse was not kind of engineered by natural selection to play out on social media in the context of American politics. This is a radically new environment. Um, you know, on the other hand, uh, if you look at the way people deploy it, like on social media, like the resistance remembers every stupid thing Trump said – and no stupid things that whoever their hero is said, um, or vice versa. You know, the other side does the equivalent. Um, they do deploy that to uh, sometimes elevate their own social status within their group. Uh, and, 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 you know, you can imagine things having sometimes played out that way in the uh, environment of our evolution. But. At the same time, I mean, but don't you think one of the pernicious things about confirmation bias is that it it, it actually filters the data that come into the into one's perception? So things that yeah. are, are that co- create dis, dis cognitive dissonance get get kind of filtered out, and those that kind of re- affirm one's pre existing views get selected for. That's get, the way. That's the way it works. You you notice and embrace even uncritically information that confirms. Your story, whether your story is your, the political ideology you've embraced, you know, the story of your political tribe, or your story that, you know, you're, you do a lot for the world and people should be grateful. 
um, whatever your story, um, yeah, that, that is confirmation bias and you are less inclined to notice, less inclined to embrace, more inclined to interrogate critically information that is at odds with your story. You say more inclined or less inclined? Well, more inclined to critically evaluate it, right? You're, you're less inclined to embrace it, to notice it, to embrace it. But if you notice it, you're more inclined to go, wait a second, I'd like to see a source for that. I'd like to I see, and, and, and just pay attention to the way you behave on social media. We all do this. Like, you know, you see some, somebody report that Trump was, had his pants on backwards. And it's just like you almost have to restrain yourself from retweeting. It's so appealing. And it turned out he didn't. But, uh, but, but if you're a Trump supporter and you see that, you're like, ah, you sure this photo isn't doctored? I want to look into the provenance of this photo, which turned out to be in order, uh, hmm. to investigate because in that case, the story was not true. They are. Did you come across that meme, by the way, that Trump was? No. I if mean, not, you were, up. you were checked out for a whole day. If you didn't come across the picture that seemed to show that Donald Trump had delivered a whole speech with his pants on backwards, you missed out on an important part of American history. This was really fun. I have checked out more than I I think I've come to realize. No excuse for that short of being on a retreat, I'll tell you. I think I'm more on a permanent retreat. But but, but one thing I had a question of since our last chat was... This this idea of something being adaptive at, in, an, in the evolutionary context and then being, would you say, maladaptive in the current uh, environment that we live in? Well, you have to ask what you mean by adaptive. I mean, adaptive in the biological sense just means uh, conducive to genetic proliferation. There are tons of things that are no longer adaptive in that sense because, for example, a lot of people work feverishly for social status but then don't convert that into reproductive success. They, they may even have a lot of sex, but use contraception. And so in strict biological terms, that's no longer, quote, adaptive. Now, the, a separate question is psychologically adaptive. Like, is it psychologically good for you? Uh, even in the environment of our evolution, like if you imagine something like a hunter-gatherer environment, uh, psychologically adaptive and biologically adaptive were not necessarily the same thing. You, you know, you could be made very unhappy doing things that might get your genes in the next generation. Uh, but, to, but to laser in on these on these existential psychological threats, like particularly the cognitive biases, would you say they were psychologically adaptive or and or biologically adaptive? I'd say a lot of them, you, you move them to a modern environment, and a lot of them are less adaptive in both senses than they may have been in the that, past. So, so this is my question. Is there a word for that? Well, there is, is a, a field called mismatch. Environmental mismatch is a word. I wrote a uh, actually a cover story for Time Magazine in the 1990s that got me in a little bit of trouble because um, the Unabomber had just been, I think, caught or his, his, no, maybe his manifesto had just come out, and it was it was a screed against technology, and. Uh, by the way, this is a little bit related maybe to the explain-excuse dichotomy. What I got in trouble for uh, is, in some corners, um, I, I I just noticed that, you know, a big part of his deal was he just hated what technology had done to the world. And 
and I think he even explicitly said it's not the way we're designed to be. It's not natural, and it's messing us up. And 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 by way of making the point that actually a lot of us feel that way, I started the the first sentence in the piece was there's a little bit of the Unabomber in all of us. And I can already see the backlash. That, that wasn't the worst part. I mean, the the worst. I, I mean, anyway, people got the idea. Like I quoted him a few times. It was just kind of a journalistic gimmick. He was what was timely, and and uh, and I used it as a device. And I got it, you know, there's one of his victims who, like, uh, has said extremely unkind things about me, a well-known uh, computer scientist at Yale, who I think had his hand blown off by a Unabomber bomb or something. Anyway, who, who apparently doesn't like me because of this piece. But I wasn't, I wasn't justifying, I was explaining what motivated him, and I was even saying his, per, the perception of the world he had that motivated him, was itself an accurate perception. I wasn't saying he was justified in sending people bombs. And this is kind of what I mean. It's, is, is like, anyway, you, you see the point, but anyway, I went on to describe this part of evolutionary psychology called mismatch theory. And, and, and an example of that is that, like, yes, sadness is natural. It served a function in the environmental revolution. Yes, anxiety is natural, but, the modern environment lets sadness uh, sometimes fester into unipolar depression. You don't tend to find unipolar depression in actual hunter-gatherer societies. You may you may find bipolar, which seems to have a genetic basis in some cases for reasons that well, people can argue about. But unipolar depression that isn't part of a manic depression uh, polarity is is really uncommon with people living in something more like the environment we resigned for. Uh, and so the theory is that what you see in the modern environment with people get depressed in that sense is, you know, they're sad and then they're whatever they are. They're living alone, which isn't natural. They're this, they're that. And these unnatural circumstances kind of uh, divert the sadness into depression. And same, same with anxiety. A little anxiety is natural. But but getting to a point where it's d- just ruling your life is not, and and maybe it's features of the modern environment that are doing that. So that's called mismatch theory when when you trace certain parts of human unhappiness to a mismatch uh, between our our quote natural environment and our current environment. Although again, we weren't designed by evolution to be consistently happy, even in a natural environment. We just weren't designed to go crazy, you're right? That that would be maladaptive, even in the biological sense. And you use the phrase that the like living alone was not a natural environment, um, right? Like in like, in isolation, like going to bed every you know you, you know in a modern environment, you can spend days on end if you want in an apart your own apartment uh, without talking to anyone. Uh, well, you could, but you can make the case that that's just that's that's the way the cultural evolution has gone. That it's it's led to these kinds of design uh, features yeah. of, of of material culture, so that someone could do that. Right. And 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 I would guess that, and I think this is a thread in, what, in a lot of things you're describing. That there's this there's a very slow lag between the biological ad, uh, evolution and the, the technological cultural evolution riding on top of that, right? So, um, and, yeah, yeah, there. Well, I mean, and, and, and that's part of the, the, the kind of, if you want to call it the, the, the evolutionary whiplash. 
where you you have these traits now that 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 are that are becoming existential threats. Right. There is that, and then there is. I, I may have uh, not followed you totally, but one thing there is also is just. Um, you know, cultural change, when it changes the environment in a challenging way, we can catch up and adapt, okay? For example, uh, when urbanization hit in a big way in the late 19th, early 20th century, lots of people moving from farms to uh, uh, cities. You know, that left people in a... It's a weird environment. They weren't used to it. It's not necessarily natural. They no longer had the stabilizing force of family. Novels were written about this, like Sister Carrie by uh, Theodore Dreiser. Uh, But institutions did eventually develop. For example, the, the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association, was targeted at these guys who who suddenly were at loose ends in a city and could get into trouble and, and blah 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 and these Christians wanted to help them not get into trouble. Um but but as technology changes things faster and faster, social media is a good example. It just shows up. And uh you know, people about the age of my daughters are just suddenly it shows up about the time they hit adolescence and it's a totally bizarre thing. It's totally unnatural. You know, and 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 a so, there's, concern- so there's something there's something about the, the modern environment that that within which these these old evolutionary traits get planted that suddenly becomes this 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 pathological slash inflamed slash socially carcinogenic condition. Yeah, you, um, I mean the the. Uh, and, uh, you know, because, because it's not our natural environment, it takes some adjustment. The adjustment may be possible, but it seems like the faster the environment changes as the, as the pace of technological evolution speeds up, the harder it's going to be to adapt. It takes a while because you, first of all, you have to develop the social pathology and realize there are people responding to like, you know, Facebook is unhealthy for a number of, for say the self-esteem of high school kids or makes them more anxious. You have to see that that's happening and then, you know, set in motion forces to do something about it. Now, maybe those two can, that cycle can happen faster than it used to partly by virtue of technology, but it is, it is, it is a challenge. Yeah. You know, this is, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I just want to get it out because it keeps coming up with my freak forget to mention it. Um, when we've talked about social media and the, the, the ills of communication on, on those platforms and, and their tendency to proliferate uh, tribalistic conflict, um, one thing that I remember hearing from a woman that I, I trained in studying acupuncture, she was a Japanese acupuncturist, and she had she has a really interesting system of acupuncture uh, that is actually taught at Harvard University Med School. Um, but she spoke about how just staring at the small, the size of the small screen, like, and, and this is, she had an evolutionary argument here, but the staring at the small screen, she felt overactivated the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight hmm. aspect of the autonomic nervous system, which would, if that's done chronically, uh, that will put someone into a more reactive tendency or, you know, give a baseline default, uh, sort of 
inner chemistry of, of reactivity because of that stim- chronic stimulation. Whereas she, she would say that we evolved, and I think you might agree, that we evolved to, to survey vast uh, horizons over the plane. And when there was a small thing that we had to focus in on, that that's what activated the, the, uh, the sympathetic nervous system of, uh, of the autonomic nervous system. So it's just this chronic staring even at small things. And then you put on, put in everything else we've talked about in terms of the content on that small screen, which is also inflammatory. It's sort of like stacked on the neurobiology and then the, uh, the cognitive biases that we're, you're talking about, that you get this kind of layered house of cards or a big problem. Yeah. And we don't really, I mean, I, I, I don't know about that particular idea, but that's the point. The, 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 the environment, our environment is changing in so many ways that we don't understand the consequences of, you know, and, and, you know, some of them become apparent. Like one thing the pandemic has done is make people uh, aware of some of the dynamics of a meeting that aren't captured on, on a Zoom meeting, right? Like making eye contact with someone to silently convey your reaction to something someone else is saying, for example. There's just all these things that uh, that don't happen. Uh, Another friend said that they were part of some seminar where they were talking about the, 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 the excessive stress that Zoom meetings were causing because of the need to look, to constantly look and monitor at people's eyes. Yeah. And, and that, that was kind of a, a, a something that would tr- trigger or signal threat. I mean, to yeah. look at someone's eyes. So, like I mean, so anyway, the, the, uh, yeah, mismatch theory is the term for, uh, for this phenomenon where uh, human psychopathologies in particular, or just extreme forms of unhappiness are a product of differences between the environment we're living in and the environment natural selection engineered us for. And we have not yet come up with a satisfactory adjustment to the tension created. And there's all kinds of adjustments. You know, meditation is an adjustment. Uh, uh, pharmaceuticals are in a, you know, SSRIs are an adjustment. Um, and, uh, but it's a, it's a scramble. So anyway, I mean, ha- I, so we got here via, uh, existential psychological threats. Is that true and, somehow? Yes. Yeah. And we were starting out with the, we could probably come back to the explain, excuse conflation. Cause this is, this is a, yeah. this is a per- pernicious example of it, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it just happens all the, uh, I mean, it, well, you know, the flip side of these existential psychological threats is to some extent, I mean, you should also list like strengths we want to cultivate, right? This is a very positive psychology kind of idea, you know, and positive psychology has gotten criticized for some things, I'm sure in some cases justifiably, but there is, in part, one thing it, 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 it has the idea that it's as important to, to, to build strengths, to, 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 to see yourself as building strengths as it is to see yourself as solving, solving, you know, addressing your deficiencies, you know, um, it's just kind of think positive. You're building these strengths that, that help you address the deficiencies. And I would say cognitive empathy is a strength that needs to be built. Cognitive empathy being the ability to look at things from the perspective of other people. 
And one, one thing the explain excuse conflation does is undermine cognitive empathy. Because if, if you say, well, I think the way this terrorist is looking at the world is, or I think the reason Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine is, I, I you know, and I, I just think the, the end of those sentences is inherently worth trying to flesh out. I just think understanding why people do things you don't like is a good idea. But but when you start sentences like that and try to exercise the cognitive empathy, you are going to get accused uh, by people who don't want to hear the answer of uh, of trying to uh, justify their behavior, which which you're not necessarily trying to do. And so, um, you know, in my ultimate kind of Dharma Bob textbook or whatever, I guess I would have, there, there would be this thing about the cultivation of strengths that it, that in, in a loose way corresponds, not in a one-to-one basis, but bears some relationship to the list of existential psychological threats. And would, I mean, I assume in the list of strengths, there would be some way to better navigate when you find your better navigate the dynamic when you find yourself in the crosshairs of being accused of justifying when you're trying to explain, because, I mean, because one of the things you pointed out is that this, this, this tendency in our culture for that, this to occur is it, it will inhibit people making good effort, good, good faith efforts to, to understand the complexity of the situation because they could get shouted down mm-hmm. for being a fascist or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'd work on the, at the on the problem at both ends. I, I mean, on the one hand, if you are trying to explain why people who did bad things did them, it it can help kind of soften up your audience a little to start out by denouncing the people. You know, it's like Bashar Assad is a brutal dictator, but I still think it's useful to understand why he whatever he did. Mm-hmm. I. That can be an effective rhetorical strategy. I think if you carry it too far, you're, you're kind of, uh, reinforcing the, the, the overall kind of, uh, superstructure that is oppressing you in a sense. I mean, in other words, in an ideal world, you just shouldn't have to denounce everyone whose behavior you want to explain. I don't know. It's like, anyway, the, the, the to work at the problem on the other end, um, I, I think, you know, uh, I, I was uh, talking about this on, on, on a podcast the other day. Um, it was the 80,000 hours podcast. And, and I actually, the conversation is on my podcast feed too. Um, the, uh, but I was saying we need to stigmatize phrases like apologist. Like one way the excuse explain, uh, explain excuse conflation, uh, you know, brings its force to bear on you is for people to say, Oh, you're a Putin apologist. You're an Assad apologist. And that just shouldn't you're, be considered cool. It should be considered you're, or, uncool. Or you're, you're a white supremacist or you're. Well, I mean, that's a little different from, uh, I mean, there are white supremacists and, and I suppose, and sure. look, there are Putin apologists, but what I mean is, uh, what I mean is, well, well, what you're saying, you're talking about ad hominem attacks in general. Yeah. And, and I'm not, I'm not getting quite that broad yet. I, I'm, uh, I'm, 
I'm saying the specific term apologist because it is so often leveled in an attempt to shut down cognitive empathy, in an attempt to stop people from explaining why people did things, that it should just be considered uncool because it it almost always is. It usually is a way of evading honest assessment. It's a way, it's a sign that you fear um, honest assessment. And, and we should treat it as such. You know, we should, it should just be like, you know, this actually in a way is a segue to that question um, that we had said we might address uh, about how you, how you mobilize people to solve problems on social media. Um, yeah, this, maybe just before go we go ahead. there, though, because um, something I've been th- trying to think through is that with the person that's levying the apologist charge, so the person that's calling you an apologist for trying to explain something, what you, I think you might say that the, the primary biases that are kind of shaping their view that you're just an apologist are both attributionary and, and confirmation bias. So far, so good. Well, there could be others too. But those I, are- I actually think the specific uh, explain, excuse, conflation it, it has a more complicated uh, kind of evolutionary origin. That, that's my suspicion. I don't think we want to get off on this because it, it's not at all well fleshed out in the literature. My own ideas are kind of inchoate, but I would. Uh, I would, I would say it has a kind of relationship to both of those things. Um, but it's not like it just consists of them something or something. In a way, it's, uh, it's to some extent kind of sui generis. But anyway. Would you say though that the person who's, who's charging you with being an apologist is, they're not aware of the conflation that they're, they're, the conflation hole that they're in? They're not aware that they're conflating explanation and, and, and excuse or justification. I, I think often there's not uh, awareness that that's the move being made right. It's, it's just right. it, that, that's why I think it's kind of in the genes. It, it, it is such a subtle but strong intuition we have that when someone and I think we all have it, we all can feel it, that when someone starts explaining why someone bad did something considered bad that they aim to excuse it. I mean, it usually is the fact, first of all, that that's what they're doing. I mean, in common conversation, usually it's the defenders of people, the friends of people, the allies of people who come up with the reasons. And see, this takes us to attribution error right away, right? Like, that's what attribution error says, that when somebody does something bad, it's their friends who will be able to come up with circumstantial reasons they did it. Reasons other than, oh, it's a bad person. Whereas their enemies will be blind to circumstantial reasons and just want to say, oh, that person's bad. And they don't want to hear these explanations. Uh, but, 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 but I think the reason they don't want to hear them is in part because there, there is this intuition, um, that to be able to come up with plausible circumstantial explanations is to exonerate someone. Right. And we've, 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 I think we've tiptoed around this in the past that when we talked about mindfulness of feelings, for example, like it, it, it's, 
the reason why I think you you describe that as difficult is because that intuitive sense is so strongly rooted that we tend to look right past it and not even notice or perceive the intuition or the in- intuitive impulse. So if someone's calling you an apologist, they're not aware that they're responding to this intuitive sense. It's just it's, it's they see it as fact. Right. They're not they're not aware that there's a, a logical leap being made. Right. And and so the question that I would ask and want you to try to think through or explore is how if you're in, if you're in dialogue with someone like that, how do you how do you uh, diplomatically point out the the error or the, the logical leap or the um, kind of the blind spot at play? Because I think that's what's going on in, in yeah. this whole issue of cognitive bias is like there are sort of perceptual blind spots that that we, we they, they shape the way we see. So we don't even question the way we're seeing. Well, I always start when that happens with listen, asshole. No, I don't. That doesn't work. Um, I, I, I don't. The only two approaches I know are to. And increasingly, I do this first one is to preface the thing with, look, I'm just trying to get clear. Sometimes it's a matter of just clarifying what exactly is happening. Even that will get you in trouble. Uh, like I had a guest on who was talking about what's happening to the Uyghurs. Um, and, and you really, you really should clarify up front that there's definitely horrible stuff happening. Their human rights are being violated, but you still think it's worth finding out whether uh, something worthy of the term genocide is happening. And so this was a guy who knew a certain amount about the question of whether, um, uh, you know, women, you know, in what sense women were being uh, coercively sterilized and so on. So we talked about that. You have to preface that with. You know, it's just good practice to preface that with what is the truth, which is that you, you, you know, uh, you, you're, you're, you're not saying horrible things aren't happening and so on. Now, now, and I would say the same thing applies when you're explaining. Well, there were other parts of that conversation where he was explaining, like, why the government is doing this. Okay. What, like, fears led the government to be repressive in the various ways they're being repressive toward the, the Uyghurs. That's a perfect example where you need to emphasize we're not justifying it. We're not saying the government is right to do it. We just think it's useful to understand what the perceptions they have that led them to do this are. And 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 so I think one thing you do is you just have to keep saying that. that, that I mean, there may be a better technique, but I increasingly try to say in advance, you know, I'm not defending this, blah, blah, I just want to say, if I forget to do that and somebody says, oh, you're defending them, you just try to clarify, uh, you know, I, all I want to do is have a clear understanding of why something bad happened. Okay. I, I think that's always in principle a good thing to have a better understanding of why bad things happen. And, um, I don't, I don't have a better solution than that. Wasn't there a part two? I thought you said there were two things. Did I miss the second? I just meant you can do it preemptively or after the fact. You can say, oh. You know, before you even go on your spiel, you can clarify your aims or you can wait until they accuse you of being an apologist 
or usually you have to do both because because the spiel doesn't get you off the hook. You, you do the preemptive thing, uh, and then you have to tell them again. Probably lace it throughout. Yeah, and again, you know, one thing people do is you know, I, well, I'm bad at this because I just don't like to emote. You know, I just, I just. There's something that's in my nature. I'm just not wild about spending a lot of time lamenting things that I do think are bad. Especially when I feel like I'm like catering to someone or something, you know, I'm just not. So I'm not the best person. There's there's something about relationally emotive and catering. Well, I I mean, I'm saying I'm especially averse to emoting. When I think the, the emoting is catering to someone's demands, like, you know, like, like I do feel horrible about the Uyghurs, but if I know that you, you are kind of demanding that I say that, I'm less inclined to say it, if that makes sense. <laughs> because it just feels like, yeah, whatever. That's just, uh, but, um, so I, I don't, yeah. I had a thought that I'm, I'm trying to recapture. Um, where, where do you think you'd want to go next? Well, I do think I, I, I want to um, at some point get to this. Uh, this there's a commenter on the newsletter. It's a non-zero newsletter. Oh, that, that's what it was. But you know, the, the the kind of exercise you just described. You know, being able to get into that. This, this uh, discussion around explaining and re- reiterating that you're just trying to explain and understand how is that, that this is the thing you, you you're you're counseling ways to be kind of better more mindful on social media but i just don't know how that that that, that dialogue would ever transpire in that context well you could say those things in that context i mean uh you know the 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 invention of the Twitter thread. I don't know if it was always technically possible, but it only, it was only a few years ago that people started using threads to, to really do long flowing arguments on, on Twitter. All right. right, right. It, it does. Even Twitter does. And Facebook, you can do much longer posts to begin with, but it, it, it gives you the space to clarify your intentions and preemptively dispel, uh, the idea that you're uh, excusing people when you're not. Um, so so, so you, I, it's not impossible, so, but, but, but I think that the question, this guy, the, the, so the, this commenter, whose name is mutter, mutter fodder. <laughs> I, I doubt. Oh, I get it. He spelled it's M U T T E R F O D D E R. I suppose that's like mother father. There was a, uh, or a just song. say, a ten, I think it's something else. If you say it 10 times fast, I'm missing that. It should it, should we take this offline? Yeah, we we can take it Metaphor. offline. Mm, I don't know. There was a uh before you were born, there was a, a comic song by Alan Sherman that started off Hello Mutter, Hello Fodder, Here I Am at Camp Granada. Anyway. You say you can't sing? <laughs> yeah, right. You wouldn't know it, would you? You would not know that. Hey, you know, uh, by the way, somebody told me that y- you who knew you in, uh, I don't want to use the term prep school, but knew you in your prep school, uh, said you were a great jazz musician. That was, 
yeah, I was able to kind of convince people of that at one point. It was funny. It so happened that in my inbox at one point, your name and his name were like, your emails were right next to each other. And his was an email telling me that he knew you. That's funny. I have a feeling I think I know who it is. Did you, did you once work with him at the New Republic? Cross that is Harris, true. Cross, that is cross, true. Cross, uh, yeah. I mean, we were, I don't think we were there at the same time, but yes, he worked at the New Republic. Um, so, uh, the, where were we? Anyway. Well, to this, okay. To so wait, Mutterfada, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me get this because I keep promising this. So he was responding to a piece where I did a deep dive into this uh, exchange on Twitter involving Michael McFaul, who, for reasons I still don't understand, was ambassador to Russia under President Obama. He's just, he's just really not cut out to be a diplomat. He is so bad at cognitive empathy. Sorry, folks. Hate to hate to go off on this guy, but I just don't get it. And he got into what I thought was need, a needlessly antagonistic exchange with a Chinese journalist who granted is himself a little bit of a flamethrower on, on Twitter. But anyway, um, I was kind of a chastising uh, McFall, and Mutter Fodder wrote, uh, Bob, you see the boxing ring that is social media, yet I gather you still believe that forum is salvageable when its dynamics inherently promote antagonism rather than rapport. I think I had said in the piece how common it is that, that, you know, McFall gets positive feedback for, you know, facing off against this guy. And, you know, uh, so that's, I think, what he has in mind when he writes that. Then he, then he writes, I know on the Dharma of Bob podcast, that's us, you hinted that maybe the tide could be turned by courageously expressing cognitive empathy there, meaning on social media. But what's the actual plan? Now, I took that to mean, is this scalable? Uh, I mean, obviously, yeah, I mean, I think it's clear how I thought, I, I, how I thought cognitive empathy could have been deployed in this case. Uh, McFall had not tried hard to understand. He should have seen the Chinese journalist was misunderstanding him. It shouldn't have been hard for him to surmise what the probable nature of the misunderstanding was. And to just clarify what he meant in a way that would have defused the antagonism. But instead, he just goes off. Um, so I think Mutter Fodder knows that I, that I, that I, I, I have a, a plan by which, you know, Michael McFall could, if he wanted to, use more cognitive empathy and any one person could. So I think the question must be like, okay, but how do we get enough people to do this for it to make a difference? I don't know. I, maybe you read it differently, but. That was what no, I, I think. I think yeah, so. When you say how to get this to scale, how do you get cognitive empathy to be a practice? Yeah, and and again, it's maybe to some extent the question is how do you how do you get it to be considered cool? You yeah. know, like how do you how do you get uh, using the term apologist to be considered uncool? And how do you consider you know these are related? Um, right. And I'm. This gets to what we were, something we were saying before we started taping, which is that you are a little more in the pedagogy, in some sense, more in the pedagogy business than I am. Now, I am in the expository writing business, I, you know, the, the business of explaining things through writing, but you are more in the, you know, pedagogy in the sense of 
motivation, maybe business. Would you say that? I, what did you mean? You, I, I, you know, you by virtue of being a yoga teacher, meditation teacher, you were saying there's well, well, no, something I, you do that I don't do. Well, I, well, I, one of the in that space, I'm a trainer. I teach teachers. In I see. Teach, I teach see. These, I see. some of these practices. So I'm, and it's all self developed. I mean, I'm I'm coming up with my own curriculum in a way, and my own mm-hmm. uh, talking points around it. So I have, I'm I'm just thinking about how these things get taught, and and so I, I I've been imagining, in, in a way, and I think I said this in an email. I think, in some regards, the kind of uh, awareness and mindfulness that you're tr- talking about related to being aware of feelings and the body. Uh, this is a, this is a kind of a, a curriculum that's ready to be injected into yoga training in a way, I think. And then, and that's sort of the, I could see it as a Trojan horse where yoga being the Trojan horse, where it's, it's already established as a very popular thing worldwide. And, and if you make this compelling case, I mean, cause yogis, all, yoga practitioners always are you know, sort of, interest in trying to see how their personal practice is is contributing to a, a betterment of the world and and that's often kind of i think ridiculed by, by cynical folks or skeptical folks but uh th- there is that interest and mm. and if there was some way of, of coming up with a kind of not just for yoga but just a curriculum there, i mean there, i would think there needs to be some sort of educational piece around how does someone develop the skill sets, both of perception and understanding, so that they are more immune to the pernicious influence of these biases? You know, this is something I want to throw out just before I forget it. Like, in loving-kindness meditation, you think about the spectrum of people ranging from yourself to, like, your worst enemy or something. And you try to wish them well, basically. What if uh, you had people in a med- meditative state think well, actually, of... Can, can, can I interrupt that for a second? Because on the surface, that can seem... It doesn't really... I, I, don't, I think some people might be confused about why that's a benefit. But I think it re- that exercise relates to the cognitive empathy. Like under, it, un, there's an undergirding in that exercise that relates to cognitive empathy, which builds on the premise that every person that you're sending the loving kindness to seeks safety happiness peace for themselves yeah. even yeah. if they're even if their strategies for securing those things are problematic for for the collective say right i think that's true i mean i hadn't thought of that but i think it's true but what i was thinking was um what if you said explicitly i don't mean necessarily it's part of loving kindness meditation but at some point in some meditative instruction so think of your worst enemy and just try to imagine something they've done that you didn't approve of and, and, and try to imagine why from their point of view it made sense or why, what was motivating them. And ask yourself if you, if you've ever been motivated by anything like that. I mean, you know, that, that kind of, because I do think people will be more successful at this when they're in a state of kind of meditative calm. And in fact, it has happened to me at least once that I remember, just spontaneously on a meditation retreat. I thought about the person who's just about my worst enemy in a very, uh, uh, I wrote about this a little in my book. I did not name the person there and will not name the person here, but the, um, but thought about, um, it was just suddenly so easy to imagine him 
on the playground as an adolescent being this gangly, like unathletic person. And maybe this is the wrong theory, but like not, not realizing social status via one common way that adolescent males try to reach it, you know, and, and ultimately finding a way that he, that he wound up very high status and, it just suddenly made sense. And the way, and the way he was that I didn't like was just part of this adaptive mechanism. And we, and we all have this. We all try to find a way to win the esteem of our fellow human beings. We all try to find an arena in which we're thought highly of. He had found one. It involved being an asshole. Sorry, I shouldn't put it that way. It involved, uh, doing things that rubbed me the wrong way. Um, it, it just, I could just see a human developing this way. And it's like, what are you going to do? I mean, yeah, we're born. He was responding to the same imperatives we all respond to in an environment different from the environment I, I was myself. I, I had found myself in. So when you were going through that exercise and that, that kind of imaginative exploration of this guy's history, you mentioned you were in a meditative state of calm, but I would ask, did you have, did you notice any kind of somatic uh, expression of that, of that process? Because this is, I think, because I've gone through this similar thing in, in meditation, not necessarily trying to explore why the, the person is wired the way they're wired, but more just been sitting there in, 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 on the cushion on our, in a retreat hall and being visited by the, the quote unquote, uh, you know, the enemy or, or the, the, the person you have a really charged problematic situation with. And there's, there's a tremendous flood of, of physiological, uh, sensations that come through. And I think that this is like learning to ride that wave just to, to see it come through and to you see mean that, the you know, normal the, flood of like dislike and antagonism. Yeah, but but I'm talking about the feeling in the body of like the heart rate, the right. constricted throat. I mean, you can you like, and that's what's kind of interesting on the on a, on a retreat or in a meditation session when it occurs, is that you're 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 essentially inured from if that's the right word if you're 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 walled off or in a bubble from any actual trigger or stimulus of the situation. So it's all created in your own mind, and yet it it can flood through the body with, with this whole pattern of very difficult sensations, which you might not normally even attend to because off the cushion, those sensations are going to drive you to all sort of, all variety of action. But to see that, and, and this is where I, one of the things about the meditation I think is relevant to what you're talking about is that by going through that process, actually sitting through the difficulty of those sensations, you're, you're essentially giving yourself a simulated training to recognize those situations when you're off the cushion. So you, you, you develop a, a wherewithal of being present to them yeah. and, and, and also non-reactive in a certain sense. Yeah. And so, so I mean, when those same, same, same impulses come up, you're able to catch them. It's a, it's a sort of pattern. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think actually in this case, this is like day five of a meditation retreat. I'm not even sure I, f- I went through the process of feeling the normal antagonistic feelings toward this guy. I was like, you know, you know, I was like a love blob by this time, but, um, but, but, but there is a, there's another kind of relationship between, but I, I think you're right that that's in a dated, it in real life, like now, if I'm sitting down on a cushion and I think of this person, the first feelings will be antagonistic. And, and you're right. Observing them is a, is a, is a, is a, 
a skill to develop and a habit to get in. Um, the, there's one other thing about loving kindness meditation, which is that when we are feeling positively toward people, it is easier, I think, to exercise the cognitive empathy. And, and it gets back, again, this is in a way a byproduct of attribution error, which says if, if you, with your friends and allies, you'll have an easier time understanding the forces that made them do bad things. Forces other than just, oh, they're bad people. Right. Um, so. So you, you, it sounds like you would like to see an updated form of loving kindness practice. That we, I, I'm not sure, that, you know, I can imagine a variant of loving kindness practice. Can, can, can we imagine, change the name? Can we change the name of it to begin with? Because we would both be in favor of that, probably. I think something you and I share, in addition to being <laughs> meditation enthusiasts, is uh, have you ever skipped the loving kindness meditation oh, man. on a retreat? Yeah, I, I, me I, too. I, yeah, I, uh, it just, it just doesn't work. I mean, maybe it's my fault, but it, but it has not tended to work for me. You know, whereas, again, ironically, just regular meditation. Like, uh, I just recounted a case where just in the course of meditation retreat, from getting deeper and deeper into mindfulness, uh, I was able to view someone much more sympathetically who, who I generally consider, a, you know, an enemy. Um, and uh, so... But and yet the explicit attempt, you know, to do the loving kindness thing tends not to work uh for me. And and you know, look, I've talked to uh Sharon Salzberg about this. She is the uh maybe the person most closely associated in, in the uh you know She's the re- she's the reigning matriarch of loving kindness. She's the reigning matriarch of loving kindness. And she knows like it works for some people, it doesn't work for others. She's fine, you know. She's not She's not insecure about it. Uh, well, we can but, we can maybe explore it at a later time. I don't know if you want to get into it now. The why I think I have, I have an idea why the the the, the desired outcome of loving kindness practice might be more readily uh, achieved in, in more of an awareness based practice for someone like you and me. Um, but we can we can shelve that okay. for a while. Yeah, we've been talking for uh, I guess well well over an hour. Uh, do you want to slide a little into, you had wanted to talk a little about myth? Yeah, I mean, th- th- I mean, I don't have much to say other than, um, I, as I said over an email, I was looking at uh, some lectures by Joseph Cam- from Joseph Campbell uh, in a series called Mythos. And in one of the early lectures, he said something to the effect that, a myth has four four parts. There's uh, and four functions. There's a there's a cosmological, sociological, pedagogical, and and uh, mystical. That's the last I'm saying mythical, but mystical dimension. And um, his his view is that if a society doesn't doesn't have an organizing myth, a, a modernized, updated myth, that it, it goes into dissolution. Mm-hmm. And 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 he was. He emphasized and underlined the point that if you only have the first three, if you have cosmology, sociology, and and pedagogy, you only have those, you don't have a myth. You need the mystical uh, experience of transcendence or or you could say unity consciousness that that ties it together and prevents the first three from just being ideology. And so Hmm. there's – and I don't fully understand – I haven't really thought through why the first three wouldn't be – um, effective enough on their own. 
Um, I have sort of rudimentary thoughts to that idea, but um, I think it's something to explore. It's like, because we haven't really got into this. What if there's other folks that, as I said, that, that, um, that see the, the experience of transcendence, whether it's through mystical union and in, in spiritual path work or through psychedelic work or through ecstatic, say dance or sort of collective, uh, ecstatic experiences, that there's something non-trivial and important about that experience to the cohesiveness of a, of a society. Well, uh, so, I mean, first of all, you're saying like, you think my worldview, the Dharma of Bob or whatever, when you say it has the cosmology and sociology pretty much, well, is, is pretty clear by cosmology, you mean, um, and here we'll have to speak just kind of telegraphically, I guess. I, I don't, we, we can't go into all of these things enough to make them clear. By cosmology, to, I just mean you're, 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 you're describing our species in relationship to the story of the cosmos. So you, you, you know, okay. you're talking, you've talked about evolution, evolution and, and, and then the logos and, and how, with the directionality of all of the, that. The possibility yeah. that evolution is an expression of the logos. And so on. And then by sociology, do you mean partly psychology? Like, does that include all the, does that include the, 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 the diagnosis and the prescription part or what? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it definitely does. The, the, the diagnosis of, of, of where this can go wrong or how this is going wrong. So that, that, that's the, uh, the diagnostic and prescriptive part of the apocalypse aversion project? Kind of? Yes. Okay. Yep. And and so then the, the things you think are less fleshed out. I mean, look. First of all, uh, I, you're the you're you're the one uh, saying that I should uh, try to reach mythic status. I guess <laughs> and, um, flesh out the four uh, cornerstones. Uh, well, the, 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 I mean, just because of the urgency through which you are. Yeah, I do. Cl- I do claim to think it's imp- yes. I do think it's important. I, I, and I agree, and I, and I agree with you. I mean, I would say the reason I teach meditation is because I believe in the right. power of the practice to transform consciousness. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm like a, a shining example of it, but I just I, I, I have had enough taste of it to know that it it it, it does deliver a very different like shift or, or, or change in, in how you see yourself in the world. So, if the other two cornerstones are pedagogy and mysticism, the pedagogy would include the kinds of things we just discussed, like, oh, you could introduce into a meditative practice the exercise of cognitive empathy or something. That's one one way, one one avenue. Um, I think I mentioned this in an email to you a while back. The idea of cognitive bias training. Period. I mean, if if these bias, I, I can already imagine if it's not happening. I'm surprised it's not happening, but. There's got to be a corporate incentive to to mitigate the influence of these biases on people's ability to to be efficient and productive, for example. So, you, and you can make a case that in any field, these biases are going to make you, you know, a less optimal agent. And and so there there's, there could be a whole uh, sort of multi leveled uh, expression of an educational uh, curriculum around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, so just like you're saying, I, I think this may be a part of what you're getting at with the, with the book, uh, 
when you say that we, we the, these phrases of, of, of condemning the apologist or the use of, a, of the term apologist and getting people thinking more in terms of existential psychological threats, there needs to be like a, an, an apocalyptic aversion project lexicon in a way, not to get, again, which <laughs> every time I say something like that, I feel like, am I getting Orwellian here? Is this, is this becoming kind of this, 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 this dark uh, form no, of social I mean, control? I, I, I want to do that. I, I mean, and I want to, um, you know, locate it in the newsletter. Uh, th- that's why, by the way, it, it, you know, I've been, I've been vaguely imagining like this kind of fleshed out, thing like where these various elements I talk about with the apocalypse aversion project, whether it's non-zero sum uh, games played by nations. In other words, problems they can both, you know, nations can achieve win, win or lose, lose outcomes through. There's that there's um, psychology of tribalism. Uh, and I've had, but I kind of don't know where to start. Like, if if I'm going to build out some kind of website or something that ultimately does include a whole lexicon and an explanation of the meaning of the terms and so on. And one thing I liked about existential psychological threats is it seemed to me like a um, a region of this where I could start. Right? Like, I think there's like four or five things I'd put under this heading, start explaining their interconnection. And, you know, it, it could be like a, so anyway, I, 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 I agree. I, I want to build out, I want to build this out. You know, it's, it's challenging. Um, but I, I, we don't disagree about wanting to have a, a lexicon and, and, and making it a cohesive thing. I mean, that's. Yeah. I mean, I'm even, I mean, I don't know much about this, but I'm imagining something like a school of thought even. Like that, that there's a, there's a, and you wouldn't necessarily need to be alone on that, but, but you get like-minded allies that, that, that agree enough to, to really generate a, a kind of school of, of, uh, thought that would have a pedagogy to, because you, I mean, you see this in other forms, whether it's sort of cultural bias awareness or, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of some other examples, but, the ways that again in, in my world in the yoga world trauma informed being trauma informed is kind of the buzz thing now and and you know there's as people are getting more aware of it um people are, are are sort of encouraged to seek education around it to be a more well-rounded teacher in some sorts to be to be trauma informed you said right okay um yeah the uh well i i think on the point of um You know, finding allies. It's funny. I, I, I am trying to explore and find dimensions of connection with different schools. And one thing I've only recently thoroughly appreciated is that, you know, like, for example, these effective altruism people. You've heard of them, right? The people, Same more. I, I mean, well, I've heard of the oh, concept. They, they, of, it's know, it's are... related with Peter Singer. It started out as like, um, you know, like figuring out if you're going to donate money to charity, where will it do the most good? Where will it get the most bang per buck? How many lives will you save via mosquito nets that are, you know, done by this one NGO versus uh, nutrition, blah, blah, blah. So it, it started out as this kind of rigorous um, 
exploration of how how you get your altruism can get the most bang per buck, the effective altruism um, movement. But I think it has other dimensions. And this 80,000 hours podcast I was on, and again, the conversation is in the Right Show feed as well as in their feed, uh, with a guy named uh, Rob Wiblin, um, who's the host of that podcast, I realized that there's a, a, a big part of the EA movement is a concern with existential risk. Uh, so like they're, they're interested in threats posed by arms races, bioweapons, climate change. And so, so on. I, I mean, I mean, I think that, yeah, right. And that, but the thing that I think is unique about your Dharma, right, is, is the psychological root of, 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 at the, at the, it's the, it's the psychological pee under the mattress that, that, uh, is, is kind of leaving everything, uh, getting everything a little bit wobbly. Yeah. And, but, and, and there, but, but there, you know, you could talk about this other community that may, that, that actually has some intersection with the effective altruism community, the so-called rationalists, which are like across the board and at least some of them are creepy, but, um, cause ideologically they cover a lot of ground, but there was an article about this in the New York Times that, that painted the community in pretty unflattering terms, but, um, and not entirely fairly, I think, but, uh, they're, they are, very concerned with cognitive biases. Um, for example, there's a new book out by Julia Galef, who is a, uh, I, I've had her on my podcast talking about the rationalist community and her, her book is called The Scout Mindset. She distinguishes between the soldier's mindset, like that's the enemy, kill them, and the scout's mindset, which is to go out in front of the soldiers and just get a clear lay of the land. Just see things objectively. And, uh, so the, and there is that spirit in in that part of that movement. Uh, so you know, I think ultimately uh you would like to find synergy with people who agree with you along any major dimension, right? Uh as long as they don't v- violate your 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 values along any major dimension, right? Mm-hmm. Um so I'm kind of trying to start to do that, but it's a tall order. There's a lot of other stuff. I'm, <laughs> as you know, one's life compels one to do a number of things. Yes. Yeah. But I do think to, for this to have legs, to this to, for, to really get transformation occurring at the level that you want to see it, th- there need to be there needs to be a curriculum of practice. I don't. I can't. I don't see how else it's going to happen. No, I, I, I agree. And the practice. Uh, I mean, the, the, my own practice includes mindfulness meditation and is in that context. And it makes sense for me to uh, work with that because, for one thing, there are some people who know me mainly through that because they read my most recent book, which was about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I I don't really feel I've I've done a very good job of cultivating that community, honestly. I mean, I don't... Uh, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I guess I'm not totally like I, I wouldn't be a good meditation teacher. I guess I'm I'm not like you or something. I'm not. I'm I'm I don't know. There's something. Well, no, no, no. You don't necessarily. You don't have to be. I know, but you don't have to be the deliverer. You just right. you, you write you write the programs, right? Or you uh, help you help design the engineer the programs, really. Yeah. Well, that would be an interesting thing for us to think about. 
Yeah. No, I think that's another, another Dharma Bob episode to come. So we'll just, you know, we'll build the myth. The myth will include the practice and, and that will, and then, uh, mutter fodder will see the answer as, uh, there was a groundswell of good intentions and, uh, Mindful use of social media that envelops the world. Well, that, that's another question I have is whether, whether I think I, I'm sympathetic to, to Mutter Fodder's question there, whether it, it, the medium itself is, is, is ever salvageable. And I know other people in, in your comment threads yeah. have, have sort of said that there's other forms that could, you know, we could de- design new social media platforms that would mitigate these kinds of problems. And I'm, that's fine. But I also think, there's something about the the attention that is being, you know, a friend of mine has a new book out um, called The Stars in Our Pockets that's looking at how digital technology essentially created an inner climate change of consciousness. Uh-huh. Our, our attention span, just it's like this coral reefs of attention capacity that have just been decimated. And... And, and I think there's, and I think there's, there is interest and, and some developments too, like these communities of people really trying resisting by opting out and, and returning to a, uh, not completely returning to like a, a, a Luddite light level, but, you know, turning away from some of these excesses of the technological landscape that are causing these problems. Yeah, I don't discourage that. I mean, we all need to I tend- actually, I, I think that's but more realistic. I have I think a butt. That's more realistic. Butt. You go with your butt. Okay, the, but the but is, I mean, I mean, first of all, we all have to tend to our mental health, uh, and I don't doubt that you can use, uh, that, uh, the state you achieve by kind of dropping out of social media by doing some good things. At the same time, social media right now is so influential that if nobody tries to improve it, we're probably in bad shape. I mean, it is doing so much right now to just uh, create needless antagonism between groups of people that uh, if all the people with good intentions drop out, that's definitely not going to change it. And, you know, there are different things you can do. You can, you can lobby uh, the big social media companies to change their algorithms. Algorithm transparency is a big hobby horse of mine. They should be, they should have, they should be legally compelled to make the algorithm public to allow third-party software companies to build their own interfaces on it, whatever. So there's various ways you can engage with a problem, and I respect people who don't engage at all, but somebody has to engage. There you are. <laughs> it has to be more than one person. That's the other thing. Okay, so uh, this is... Uh, I, I think this is... I've enjoyed this, and... Uh, but a person my age really shouldn't try to talk for more than an hour and 26 minutes at a time without a nap. Or another sip of coffee. Or more coffee, and, and I would have to brew that, so I can't just walk over and get it. Um, so thank I think you. We'll, I, think, I think we'll have to leave till next time the, the status of your meditation practice, um, which is fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, no, 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 don't. Uh, just, just leave it. Okay, oh, yeah, we'll leave them on the edge of their seats. This will keep them yeah. coming back. <laughs> this will keep them coming back. Okay. We'll leave that for, for next time. Same here. So, uh, thanks, and, and let's do it again soon. Sounds good.
right. If you're still here, and I hope you are, I want to thank you for listening to this show. Uh, I feel like the content in this conversation is super important. And as I said earlier, it's really an honor to have uh, a guest like Robert Wright um, to be or to be in conversation with Robert. He's not my guest. I'm a guest on his show, but just great to be in conversation with him and um, to to give platform or expand platform for his uh, his dharma, his worldview. So again, um, I really want to encourage you if you're concerned about the state of the world and you want a, a, a light of inspiration for a path forward, Bob is really trying to shape a big part of that conversation. And I wholeheartedly stand behind the direction he's he's trying to trying to shape things or move things so uh do check out his newsletter there's a link for you in the show notes it's on substack it's called the non-zero newsletter it covers a whole range of themes and topics but i'd say this the core alignment is around cognitive empathy the, the importance of cognitive empathy and the unfortunate lack of cognitive empathy in so many forms of discourse so uh, here's to cognitive empathy. Here's to a brighter future. Uh, go subscribe to Bob's newsletter and thank you for your attention here. Uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. I'll be giving you one more episode this season before I take about a month off for the end of summer podcast hiatus where I'm going to be going into a personal retreat. Terry and I are going to be doing a, a, a sort of a personal retreat at home for a few weeks and just recharging our own batteries before we come back in the fall. So uh, one more episode for me to come. I look forward to sharing that with you. Until then, take good care, stay strong, stay safe, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Take good care.